Hello, welcome to today's episode of Remember Statistics and Sports Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I. I, uh, I know you didn't see it. I got like peeked out from behind the wall real quick to see if we were on video. She could probably go do something on the other part of the apartment. It's very funny. Bell, um, I need you to learn how to argue, girl. since we last spoke uh cleaning up the last sorry sorry taking taking the last two games in philly and then really just crushing them back at home after a big fourth four run sixth inning uh corwin how much of the series did you get the chance to watch um again since the last time we recorded uh i have yet to watch a complete game again it's not as yet it's over Get your pronouns correct. Not a pronoun. What am I? What is happening? What is Corwin? <laughs> uh, I watch bits and pieces of every game. And then last night, game five, I watched as much as I could while being unbelievably exhausted and struggling to keep my eyes open. Um, but I was conscious and listening to all of it. Um. So, yeah, it was. Uh, I had a point I was about to make, and then I got you distracted looking at a menu for lunch later today. I'm so sorry. Hell yeah. Uh, anyway, so last time we had talked, we had said you know that it had been the starters getting roughed up. You know, of the first, I think we, I think we talked at like the halfway point. I'm pretty sure we did the first three games, and you know now we have the the, the final three games to talk about. And in the first three games, the, the story really was the starting pitching. You know, everyone had been able to get to the starters and the bullpens had been pretty much locked down. And the story from and I had said, uh, you know, Cor and I had both said, you know, the story is going to be who can get to the other team's bullpens. And that kind of was the case. So on the Phillies side of things in game, what game is this? Game four, the game immediately following this discussion. Uh, Aaron Nola got tagged for th- for three, but you know, three runs. One would say, even though four innings, eh, one would say uh, your batting lot, your lineup should be able to produce more than three runs. You know, that's the the logic behind the quality start. Even though this is not a quality start, um, lineup should be able to produce that. And Phillies did not. What ended up happening was um, Jose Alvarado comes in, and this was this was tough. Jose Alvarado comes in, bases loaded, everybody scores. <laughs> Those are all, all the runs that Aaron Nola allowed in what was a five-run fifth inning, which was the only runs allowed in the entire game. So that game was one five to nothing. All from that all damage done in that one inning, which ooh boy, howdy is a tough look. On the other side of things, the Astros got a combined no-hitter. As Christian Javier went six innings, two walks, nine strikeouts. Uh, Brian Abreu, three strikeouts. Rafael Montero, one strikeout. Ryan Presley, a walk in the strikeout. Um, obviously, no hits, and all those last three guys had one inning apiece. First time ever. Um, yeah, uh, second no-hitter in the World Series, the other one being Don Larson's perfect game uh, against the Dodgers. Um, the first regular, regular no-hitter, the first obviously combined no hitter, um, which is once again sparked, at least for the day before the next game started up the debate over how impactful a no hitter, a combined no hitter is. Um, do you have any opinions? On I this? think it's a neat little, you know, accolade for a game. I don't think it should be counted as a no hitter. It, like it is. I feel like it's more of a detriment to the team that is no hit than it is an achievement for the team that throws it. We we have talked about this before, and 
when a team gets shut out in this, let's say it's the same fashion, four pitchers get used in a shutout. We don't often look at the team that did the shutting out with four pitchers and say, look at the crazy good shutout that those four guys did in nine innings. You know, what we say is, oh, fuck, like the Yankees got shut out by an army of pitchers. Yeah, you can get hits and walks and, you know, get men on base. So it's not a perfect game or, and it's not a, a no hitter. You know, it's just a shutout. But we very rarely attribute the the a, a team shutout to the to the pitching team. We usually attribute it to the team that had been shut out. And it feels like that's kind of what a no hitter should be. A, a combined no hitter should be. Agreed. You know what I mean? It. Yes, it's an accomplishment for the pitching team. And yes, the other team literally got no hits. So it is by definition a no hitter. And putting it in the record books is totally, totally fine. Like, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't keep track of these things. Like they are occurrences that have some weight, right? But like there's a difference between Sandy Alcantara throwing nine innings, 120 pitches, allowing two hits, three walks, and 10 strikeouts, and getting the shutout himself versus you know the Astros throwing out four relievers who all had good days and right. just another I, I agree with you completely. For all of our aspects of team sports, and this is all team sports, not just baseball, there are moments that denote singular achievements within the sports. And those, to me, no hitter, while it certainly has proven to become, to, to or to be, I guess I should say, a team achievement as, you know, bullpen dominance has been more prevalent and hits general, in general, are we're not a singles hitting society, I guess I should say, you know, we, we are very much so in the more modern baseball, which is hit, hit for power, sell for power. I'm trying to poke it through a hole. Um, and to that end, we have more of the, the team achievement of it, but I, I can't help shake in my heart that those designations, no hitter, perfect game shut out. Those should be individual achievements. I agree with you completely. All right. So, that was the story of game five. Uh, game six. No, sorry. That was the story of game four. Fuck. Game five. God, I, you think eventually I'd get better at this. Game five was, was, was a little bit closer. Um, each team scored in the first. Astros scored in the fourth and in the eighth. Bottom of the eighth comes up. Phillies scrape one run across the board. Can't get the second one. No one scores in the ninth. Astros take the game three to two. In that game, Verlander got tagged for a run for the Astros, and Rafael Montero got tagged for a run in the eighth for um for the Astros as well. But Noah Syndergaard's two runs proved to be the ultimate, uh, the insurmountable detriment. Sir Anthony Dominguez also allowing one run uh, late in the game as well. A total of nine pitchers used each side. Um, I'm sorry, that's not innings pitch. My mistake. There's a total of five innings. Five. Oh my god. A total of five pitchers used for the Astros and six for the Phillies. I think that would make this with 11 total pitchers, the largest quantity of pitchers in any of these individual games of the series. Um, but funny enough, still one of the lower scoring affairs, I guess, looked at altogether with only five runs combined. Um, yeah, takeaway moments from this, Jeremy Pena's home run off of uh, Noah Syndergaard in the... Um, the fourth, which proved to be again the the death knell for the uh, who who would you call it's the at the uh, the Phillies. Um, did you Kyle Schwarber also got his first inning home run off of Justin Verlander, which was a, yeah. a big moment that also ultimately falls a little bit flat since you know the team did not get the chance right. to win. Uh, any takeaways for you from from this game for either side? Not really. Yeah, I mean. Philly flexed their home run potential. They're going to have that, you know. They seemed like a very streaky team altogether, and my goodness, uh, it really felt like this series was a culmination of all of that. It is one of the tough parts about... I I, you know, I, I think it's on display um, in the postseason more than ever. The difficult part about being a home run heavy team 
because it is by far the most effective way to score runs, which is why it makes sense to build your team as such. And the runs that we do see scored more often than not in the postseason are scored via the home run. But the tough part is no player hits home runs super consistently. At least that's how it tends to feel over the course of regular season. It feels like everyone goes through ups and downs. They go through spurts, which in small sample sizes can look really, really bad or really, really good. And like, for instance, here in this series, not so much for the Phils. At least not so much in the final three games for the Phils. Like if you took, if you look at these as two different regular season series, two, three game sets, that is the season. You know what I mean? Like that is the Mm -hmm. regular season. Phillies crushing in the first three games and then having a three game skid. I have put in air quotes. Like that is the regular season. And then, man, there were so many that were still a significantly close. Like there were a lot of really close hits that were really close to going out where, you know, I almost said Padres, the Astros defense came in clutch. Like uh, Cal or what's that? McCormick. What's his first name? Like Chaz. Chaz. Yeah, it was something. Chaz. Chaz McCormick made a beautiful catch, I think, twice to save a home run. Uh, I know Tucker had some really good catches. Altuve had one or two. Bregman, second half of the last game, was uh, locking down that left side uh, with Pena. It really, I think, goes back to... Actually, you know what? I saw something said that I I want to know your thoughts towards, but it might have been on the John Boy recap where what made the Astros so... and the Astros pitching so difficult to hit against was because of their almost over-reliance on breaking ball pitches was something that could have been a... you know. Uh, attacked throughout the season but when you are a team like both the Yankees and the Phillies where so many of your runs come from the home run ball and you are swinging for that home run on x amount of pitches sitting for fastball waiting for those you know big opportunities to come it accentuates the breaking balls that the Astros are throwing and their effectiveness at throwing hitters off or preventing those big contact connections. Um, well, we'd have to get in the numbers of it, which I uh, I don't have in front of me. So is basically his idea is the uh, Phillies sit fastball so heavily that the breaking balls just have an increased uh, efficacy. Uh, more is so kind of the point. More so that the fact that they are throwing so many breaking ball pitches forces the Phillies to guess significantly more about when the fastball is coming, decreasing their effectiveness at sitting and guessing rather than one causing the other. Okay. I see what you're saying. Hold on one second. All right. So I ran... For us, a query for uh, breaking ball pitch usage. And Houston is pretty middle of the pack. Okay. 12th. Good fuck, John Boy. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it sounds like a nice theory. Uh, Granted, this is just a single cursory search I did for this information. So, I don't know what, what John Boy or his people used for their information. Maybe there's a little bit more in in depth analysis that got done there. Um, But as a percent of their pitches being off speed, it was 32% and MLB average in this uh, query is 31%. So uh, the team with the, with the highest breaking ball usage was the Kansas city Royals 36 and a half. And the lowest usage was the Arizona Diamondbacks, 22.9. Um, yes, I, so I'd, I'd be hesitant to say that's what the issue is, um, especially because there was, observationally, 
again, I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time continuing to pause our recording sessions to do more queries. We can make this a whole episode another time if we feel like it. Um, didn't strike me that they were using a, a lot of breaking stuff. It seemed like there was specified attack plans for each batter. A lot of high fastballs to kind of throw off the swing plane of the batters more so than the oscillation and, and especially noticeable oscillation between um, breaking balls and, 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 and fastballs. It, it seemed a lot more just like good pitch selection for the hitters at hand or for the uh, appropriate instance. But yeah, I mean that plus the fact that uh, Philly's lineup just didn't produce, you, you know, I mean, uh, look, you're going to swing and miss. You're not going to get on base. You're not going to. You're not going to take a lot of walks. I mean, Bryce Harper disappeared in the last couple games. Like, you know, th- those are going to be the things uh, that that are going to really be the biggest detriment. I would say Philly pitched very well this series, a lot better than I was expecting them to. Even though, you know, the uh, um, Astros had a couple big innings there, but like the fact that like their last two wins, I think they're. Um, wins were condensed down or games uh, four and five, I should say. They're they're all their runs were I think scored in just two innings. I mean that's mm-hmm. really impressive. Yeah, I mean the Astros pitching as a whole was wildly impressive. Um, they were consistent, consistently had multiple guys throughout the lineup who were able to you know get hits, um, but the pitching was. Really something. I mean, Justin Verlander turned it around, didn't go out without a fight. Um, but yeah, it was uh it was definitely something. Uh the final game of the series, the game that we just watched last night or Saturday night, if you're listening to this, 4-1 win for the Astros. The game obviously had a a huge moment for the Phillies in the top of the sixth inning when Kyle Schwarber got that home run. Um off of Framber Valdez to put the Phillies in the lead, but the Astros came right back off of what was a questionable managerial decision from Rob Thompson, uh, in which the, um, the, in which, uh, Zach Wheeler got runners on the corners, uh, and rather than let him pitch to, uh, Jordan Alvarez in a game in which Wheeler was playing rather well, the situation with the runners getting on the corners was, hit by pitch uh fielder's choice and then kind of like a shitty single like a real like a weak hit single you know like nothing nothing egregious like it wasn't getting tough touched up too much um then brought in Jose Alvarado who if you recognize the name from just a few moments ago yeah. was the guy who allowed all of the runs to score um in that five run inning that we, uh, led to the Astros five nothing victory in, in uh, game four. I'm not going to check. Um, came in and immediately allowed a three run home run to uh, Jordan Alvarez, who had been quiet pretty much all series. Again, it was his first home run since the ALDS. So that's how well he had been contained by the Yankees pitching staff and and the Phillies pitching staff up until that point. But that three run home run coupled with an additional late add-on run in that same bottom of the um, sixth inning, ultimately, again, is what uh, what did it. Uh, Philly couldn't get any a single run across that wasn't uh, that one Schwarber bomb. That was it. That's all they got. Yeah, and the... Uh, Oh, you're talking. You're you're muted, my friend. The, the hack he took at that pitch for the home run, uh, I would have bet with the second he made contact, I would have bet a significant amount of money that that ball was not getting out the way it looked like he was golfing essentially with that uppercut. 450 feet just demolished that. Yeah. Demolished it. Also as a non soccer, before we get into the series summary and full wrap up, um, did you see that mattress Mac won $75 million on his bet on the Astros this year? I did. It's got to feel good. Largest legal sports betting payoff of all time. Which I love that it's definitely not going to be anywhere close to the largest illegal bet or winnings of all time. For sure. That man's taxes must be fucking insane. I know people on ESPN have explained to me how the money works. I don't I don't truly understand how the money works as a former not a former, as a finance major, as someone with a finance degree, I don't get how that all works out in the end. 
how that's worth it for him to do every single year. I mean, I he still makes money. It's just the question of how. Oh much, yeah, you know I mean? but yeah. I don't I don't know how it should. <laughs> Dude, nobody knows. No, 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 nobody knows. I, yeah. It, it, it does huh. it to me though. It does feel mildly vindicating of the conspiracy theory that mattress stores are a front for other things. Like that amount of money, even post tax, is probably enough to keep mattress max various stores open without a sale for quite some time. Oh yeah, I believe or that. To, to fund whatever shady business practices really go on at mattress firms across the nation. <laughs> uh, I have never seen a mattress store that I did not fully believe was a, some sort of cover for um, some shady operations. There was a, a cigar shop by where I went to college that uh, some friends and I would go to in the winter to hang out, you know, when it was too cold to smoke a cigar outside the, and the the shop next to the cigar shop was this like a glass store like they sold like mirrors and 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 shit i guess but we i never in the 4 years i went to school saw it open never never saw it with the lights on and we would go sure. you know we were in college like we didn't have 9 to 5s you know what i mean like so we could go <laughs> kind of whenever we felt like it and at uh, we're talking weekdays we're talking weeknights we're talking weekends never saw that place open but it was always like filled with stuff that would ha- be in that business. And I've mm-hmm. never seen a more clear front for something else in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Something else is happening with this storefront. And let me tell you, folks, it was not selling mirrors. Never. Absolutely never. Yeah. Oh, anyway. Uh, so the highest OPS player batting on the Astros was the rookie Jeremy Pena, uh, who finished up the series batting 400, 423, 610, 23 OPS. The other top players for the Astros in the batting line, Alex Bregman, three, uh, 908, and Kyle Tucker, 804 OPS. The highest player by win probability added, Jeremy Pena. Same thing for win- championship win probability added, also Jeremy Pena. For the Phillies batting, their best player was, no surprise, Kyle Schwarber, who hit three home runs this series. Um, he was their leader in, um, sorry, he actually was not the leader. I'm probably added. I really thought he was for a second. JT real Muto was, uh, 26, 0.26. Um, and Bryce Harper was the leader in championship when probability added. So really their, their productivity and their, their win odds, nice and spread around there between those three dudes. Uh, the Phillies, this series smacked eight home runs as opposed to the Astros five which I think makes this the first World Series that was won by the team with fewer home runs since um, oh, one of those early 2010s World Series, I think, were also uh, won by the the lesser home run hitting team. I, sh- I sure as hell am not going to be able to pull that for you. So you're on your own there. We're, yeah, we're not checking. I'll tell you that much, folks. We're not checking. Uh, win probability added leader for the Astros. Actually, let's go with whip first. Whip The whip leader was Christian Javier, 0.33. Pretty nuts from a starter. Um, win probability added leader, Ryan Presley. Championship win probability added leader, Ryan Presley. ERA leader. Uh, sorry, there were actually uh, six Astros with a zero ERA. Jose Urquidy, Ryan Stanek, Hector Neris, Christian Javier, Brian Abreu, and Ryan Presley. Um uh, also, just a standout performance from Framber Valdez. Two games started, rack of two wins, 12.1 innings pitched, led the team. He only allowed two earned runs. Just a great, great outing from Framber Valdez. Uh, on the Philadelphia side of things, their whip leader was um, Andrew Bellotti. Three innings pitched, nobody got on base. Win probability added leader was David Robertson with a 0.24. Championship win probability added leader was also David Robertson. Wow. Uh, the Phillies had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight players with zero ERAs. Uh, Nick Nelson, Brad Hank, Kyle Gibson, Andrew Bellotti, Zach Eflin, Connor Brogdon, Ranger Suarez, and David Robertson. Um, really, all of their earned runs came against like two guys, and those were the starters, Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola, uh, seven and eight. Um, 
the fact that Noah Syndergaard had one of the fewest earned runs allowed of the players with earned runs is nuts. Um, Again, not something we would have said uh, about the World Series or predicted during the World Series uh, to start the season. No, man. Fucking go figure. Uh, The World Series MVP winner was Jeremy Pena. Would you have voted for him or would you have voted for Framber Valdez? Because I really thought they were going to give it to Framber Valdez. Um, just because um, what what a two starts he had. Obviously, what, Jeremy Pena, a great pick. But. Of course, yeah. But what what was Framber Frambler's? Can am I am I being me again? Am I saying the that Rambler flag totally Rambler? Whack? Yeah, Frambear. No L. Frambear. Okay, thank you. Um, I. I don't what what did his stat line end up being? Uh two starts, two wins, twelve point mm-hmm. one innings pitch, which led the team uh, in his starts, two six hits, two earned runs, five walks, eighteen strikeouts in twelve point one innings pitch. That's just nuts. That's a whip of uh eight ninety-two. Uh, his win probability added was second highest on the team. His championship win probability added was also second highest on the team. Um, those are the playoff series stats. Yeah. Uh, actually, you know what? Regardless of what that stat line is, uh, the fact that we have gone from Carlos Correa, Car- Carlos Correa, you are you are building shit. a perfect resume for being a WFAN sports commentator. <laughs> Carlos uh, Correa. <laughs> uh, am I Mike Francesca? Uh, going from him winning World Series MVP to deciding he wanted more money and didn't want to resign with Houston to having to announce and give an interview to uh, Jeremy Pena, who replaced him and then won World Series MVP is too poetic to really vote against. I think that's something that just needs to be in the history books. It's a beautiful moment. It really makes you wonder where he's going to go because one of the most competitive teams that has shown the proclivity to spend the most amount of dollars has so clearly their shortstop of the future signed up. And and like the man had to interview him. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like that team is, is not competing for you, buddy. I think we'd yeah, all like to think that if we became free agents with our jobs, like one of our previous jobs would reach out to us, like clutching their pearls and just being like, which like hands clasped on their knees, like begging mm-hmm. for our return. And the and Carlos Correa has to deal with the fact that the Astros are definitely not doing that, no, which might not mean God, anything, no. but I, I'd feel a certain type of way about it. It means something to me. Yeah. Um. So I, I think we've done this every year, but what does this mean going forward? Let's start with, I guess, the Phillies. What does this mean going forward for the team? They made it all the way to the World Series in a season where, under a different playoff format, they wouldn't have made the fucking postseason. And mm-hmm. six games. This was a really solid performance from, from the Phillies. Yeah. There were some weird deep. choices in there. Like, how about the fact that Kyle Schwarber bunted with two strikes yesterday? I you don't need to discuss that. Sure. No, no, no. Would not wrap my head around that one. Um, and it's not worth trying to dissect, but um, it seems like they got, you know, they, they liked the manager. They signed Rob, Rob Thompson up for, for I think it was a three-year deal. I don't really remember. Um, what do you think about the Phillies going forward from here? Uh, I feel like they're not rebuild, but they're retooling that they've had the past couple of years. It's always been towards the belief that they will contend. And I don't know if I ever truly believed them because I never really saw the results and I never really enough to to you know make up for complete lack of defense and and streaky hitting that would be you know what they are but man they have to be all in on you know pushing the spending and pushing their investments getting some deeper pitching in there um i think they really i think the nl east is going to be a fucking bloodbath for the next three years Here's a fun fact for you. Next year, you know, we haven't done winter meetings. We haven't done free agency yet. Like, all that stuff's to come. So, those numbers will only grow. But as of right now, current players under roster for 2023, three of the top five payrolls in baseball are in the NL East. That's beautiful. Mets, number one. Phillies, number two. Braves, number five. That's really beautiful. 
Yeah. So when Corrin says a bloodbath, it will likely be both on the playing field and in the financial books. Uh, Steve Cohen is just greedily rubbing his hands together, knowing he can afford it. And everyone else is just kind of, well, I guess the Braves aren't scared because they know they don't actually have to spend all that much to be able to sign guys. Um, yeah, that's that's really honestly, that's one of the reasons why their payroll is so high in the first place is because they don't have to you know, like everyone's payroll will rise after even just arbitration because they don't mm-hmm. there's none of these arbitration figures are in there yet because we don't know what they are. Right. But the Braves have so few players that they actually really have to figure out arbitration with because they just keep signing everybody to long long term contracts. Mm-hmm. Fucking Braves. Fucking ridiculous, man. Yeah, I'm, so you know it'll be interesting to see how they compete in the free agent market. There's there's going to be some some pretty solid names in the free agent market. So I mean, Will's like, do the Phillies come out and try to tackle Carlos Correa, or do the <laughs> Phillies come out and try to tackle like a, a Jacob Degrom or, or or like a starting pitcher to try out their, their their pitching? I mean, really, if they want to commit to the big payroll thing, which they certainly could do, they have a. Mm-hmm. a, a they have a, a case study of how their team could perform at at peak from just what happened this past series. Um, if they can point to for success, like they're gonna have, an, they're gonna be an interesting team to watch in the in the off season. On the I Astros side, sorry, go ahead. No, uh, nothing, nothing of note. On the Astros side of things, it's kind of the opposite tale. You know, we're talking about the Phillies just kind of starting to ramp up what uh, a potential big playoff window could look like for them. The Astros, now that they're on the end of a playoff window, but they've been the best team in baseball five, six seasons now. And um, finally collect their second world series win after, you know, winning the first time in 2017. Uh, what do you think this win means for them going forward? I heard some people say on the broadcast that this validates their previous wins um i would like to reiterate that no it does not Uh, and by previous wins i mean the previous win um i don't know man i don't think it changes anything for them like honestly like what what would it change in their strategy that they weren't already doing yeah i would agree i mean of players players of note leaving the team Justin Verlander. Yeah. And I mean, it's okay. You have three, four guys under 30 that are all excellent. Don't really need to be worried about that. Yeah. Players leaving the Astros at the end of the season, Justin Verlander, Michael Brantley, Will Smith, Trey Mancini, Yuli Gurriel, Martin Maldonado, Christian Vasquez, Aledmus Diaz, Jason Castro, Rafael Montero, and Franklin Barreto. So some of those names are um, are meaningful, but of those names, I'm not sure what the market would be. Like, you know, Yuli Gurriel and Martin Maldonado leaving the Astros might be significant from an Astros perspective because those guys have been such mainstays at their respective positions and have that veteran presence. There's also like no real market for those two fucking dudes. I mean, Yuli's 40 and Maldi's 37. Uh, so their only real value is kind of like to the Astros, to which point if they wanted to bring those guys back, they could do it without breaking the bank. And frankly, like, yeah, like they are valuable, like you said, to the Astros for guys that are a part of the team. But I don't think either of them couldn't be very easily replaceable. I mean, first base, come on, that's about as easy to replace as you get in these this day age. Um, and a defensive and, first I mean, catcher. That's yeah. like half of them. I mean, come on. Yeah. You, you're telling me the Astros don't have one of those prospects in a way. Actually, I do want to look up their prospects. I'm sure they're fantastic. I, actually, I'm, I'm sure their prospect rating will probably go down now that Jeremy Pena is a legit major leaguer. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what space they end up contending in in the free agent market. I'm sure their outfield could probably use a little bit of help so that you don't have to have Jordan Alvarez taking uh, postseason um, plate appearances as a left fielder and instead can have him just truly be the DH role. Um, outside of that, though, I mean, like, their infield is solid. Their, their infield is who fucking cares at first base, second base, Jose Altuve, shortstop, Jeremy Pena, third base, Alex Bregman. Like that's an amazing infield. 
their pitching is looking rock solid with those young dudes. So maybe they go after some additional just to spend money and, and, and bolster the team, go after some additional pitching depth in, in the offseason, chase down a catcher, and then your center fielder is uh Chaz McCormick, who oh. offensively, whatever, defensively great. Kyle Tucker, gold glover, silver slugger, awesome. And then, you know, pick up maybe some outfield depth for left field, just again, just so that Jordan doesn't have to do it. And then your mm-hmm. DH is fucking Jordan Alvarez. It's a good fucking team. Um, looking at their prospect rankings, their top guy, the only player in the top 100, number 68, Hunter Brown, right-handed pitcher that will probably start the season with the team. Um, their number two guy was their first round pick in this past draft outfielder, Drew Gilbert. He's not projected till 25. Uh, and then, you know, catcher first baseman, Yanir Diaz is their number three projected to start 2023, had some, some at-bats this year. I, nothing here is, uh, wild, but they have some young guys that can come up and holy shit. Forrest Wheatley had Whitley, I should say has absolutely plummeted in his ranking. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he was the number one player in baseball. He is now the number 10 player in the Astros farm system, which is not what it once was. So, wow, that's that's a tough fall from grace. Yeah, goddamn. Um, Anywho. Sorry, I'm just trying to see if there's anything else baseball-related for us to really get into. Uh Oh, Dusty Baker. Do you think he comes back at the uh, for for next season, or do you think he retires? Uh, it's really hard to argue for a uh, a guy like him to kind of not end on top, seeing as he had set the record for the most wins in MLB history before winning a World Series. Um, still, I mean, God, it must feel nice to be able to go out on top. I don't know. It's a coin, uh, a coin of the flip. It's a coin of the flip for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Dusty Baker, who was uh, a really solid player in his own right, top five MVP finish, uh, two-time All-Star, Gold Glove, NLCS MVP, World Series winner in 81, two-time Silver Slugger, uh, long-time member of the Atlanta Braves, LA Dodgers, and then a short stint with the Giants and the A's. Um so knows to win a World Series as, as a player, and since he's been managing since the year 1993, prior to both Corwin and my own birth, um, after 30 years of managing, collects his first World Series win as a as a manager. Um, and, you know, took on a pretty gigantic task for uh, a man outside of an organization, you know, or a man coming into an organization. You know, mm-hmm. Let's not just forget, like, not only is he, did he take one of the best teams in baseball and, you know, keep them looking like that and, you know, handle young dudes coming up and, and their performance and contribution to the team when it really mattered in, in premier positions in bright lights like like Jeremy Pena. Um, he came in right at the pinnacle of the Astros cheating scandal and got brought in as the guy who could be the guiding light and the adult in the room in what was a you know, tumultuous locker room during a very difficult, tempestuous time in the Astros organization. And I mean, at at an old age too, which I just want to like add on, like he really didn't have to do this. It was a man every universally respected with, with, with a a ton of accolades, all of which were deserved um, really did this, whether it was to prove to himself that he could do it or or for the altruism of seeing a bunch of bright young players at a, at a difficult time in um, their playing careers or for the chase for a ring, whatever it was, he handled himself amazingly, uh, got his win, still universally beloved. I mean, did a ton of work just by being himself and being crazy cool on on doing rehab for the Astros, you know, like. It's like that old Simpsons joke. The Astros ran out of credibility, so they're borrowing some of mine. Um, very applicable here, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
listen, he did an incredible job. There's absolutely no doubting that. Um, they literally won the World Series Corbin. Of course he did an incredible job. Good insight. Um, I don't know, man. I really don't know. I, I think I'd like to see him end on a high note. I'd like to see what the Astros could do for my own selfish uh, reasons uh, with someone not as achieved at this point. The... Uh, renowned and loved and i want to see them suffer at least attempt to be put in a situation where they're going to be made worse but yeah i yeah unfortunately i don't think they're going to get any worse but i mm. i i it's also a shame because if dusty baker retires are there any black managers left in baseball uh isn't there one i know it's not uh, david much. roberts yeah but in. does he and really he's on, count? And he's on the hot seat. Yeah, yeah, which seems crazy, but I mean, it's also very understandable. Like he, he yeah. is like the opposite of Dusty Baker, where like he is managing one of the best teams in baseball, and they cannot figure it out in the postseason. Mm-hmm. Just can't do it. They didn't even make it to the NLCS this year. That's tough. You're welcome. <laughs> Get fucked, Dodgers. Um. All right, so yeah, that'll be something to uh, to keep an eye out for. Uh, so the next time we talk baseball, it'll probably be as free agency officially starts up. Which, no, nah, dude, I'm it's sure gonna it... be uh it's gonna be a yearly recap, bold prediction. Oh, that's right, that's right. After we get after we get the award winners, we will talk about how we fared with our bold prediction stuff, and and then opens up free agency, and we'll get. Uh, I'm sure everyone's already getting. If you follow the show, I'm sure you get push notifications from sports apps. So I'm sure you're already getting the lists of top free agents available predictors of where they'll go all that type of stuff lots of stuff to look forward to as the winter meetings rapidly approach and pitchers and catchers reporting in 100 days i think or at least just under um wow yeah right so i think looking... i did see that today it's 100 days starting today yeah it's because the postseason ran a few days later than it usually does um <laughs> that just kind of pushed it over uh Looking over at the uh, the football side of things, um, you know, obviously we didn't get the chance to talk about last week's games too much. And we're not going to get a chance to talk about this week's game since they are about to start and Corn and I are currently recording because we have other things we have to do with our day. Um, but uh, we did think it was funny as we were chit-chatting before the show. It's a thing that happens all the time which is whenever a team doesn't do anything at the trade deadline, there is an insistence from the PR department that, oh boy, we did try. <sighs> and the Packers are trying to do that. And we talked about the Packers not doing anything when we talked about the trade deadline in our last episode. And the fact that the Packers PR felt the need to come out and say, oh, we really tried. We, we tried to target some big names. You know, we tried to go after Chase Claypool and Darren Waller and, whatever wide receiver you like, you like that wide receiver. We try to get them um, to, I guess, alleviate the, the, the pain of the fact they got literally nobody. I just don't get why they do it. I just don't get why they do it. Like I told Josh, when we first brought it up, people who aren't good at their jobs love making a point about how they're working really hard and actually are really good at their jobs. And it's exactly what it feels. It feels so much like, no, guys. I mean, it it is also a comp, a, a constant like complimenting somebody else on how good their job is. So that like, oh, I mean, we 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 did a really great job. But man, those other GMs, they're all Hall of Famers. What can we say? Yeah, they just GM. they just wouldn't work with us. You know, they just refused to to take our better offer. Uh, what can you do? Uh, it's 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 not us. It's them. What can we say? What can we say? We're, 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 our hands are tied. <laughs> um, so that was just funny. I, I do want to make a, a a quick conversation out of this, just because I am still incredulous over the fact that the Eagles are undefeated. Yeah, I don't know. I uh, I don't know. I don't, why how are I they know. undefeated? I don't, I don't get know. it. So we can talk about this game at least a little bit because the game has happened as we're recording this because this was the Thursday night football game where they beat the Texans, which like you'd say, oh, of course, they'll beat the Texans. And the game was a little bit closer at points than it probably should have been. 
Um, so far, the Eagles have taken down the Lions, which no surprise. The Vikings, which was, you know, that's a big game. Commanders, which is no surprise. The Jaguars, which is no surprise. The Cardinals, which is a big team this year. The Cowboys, which is a big team this year. The Steelers, which, again, sorry, Corwin, is no surprise based on their performance this year. And the Texans, which is no surprise this year. But still, within a, a series of games in which you'd say there's a bunch of games where you'd project a team that's good to win, there is some good fucking wins in there. Especially mm-hmm. those games like the Cardinals and the Cowboys. Those are some good fucking wins. Yeah. Um, I think when you do look at the quarterbacks they've faced and the overall strength of schedule it's not it's not you know it's not something that paints the eagles as being a true juggernaut type team but my goodness no matter how you look at it there's so much that is just ah they're gonna go 17 and 0 like ah they really don't play anyone else the rest of the year they're 8 and 0 there's just not a whole lot in their way that I am a hundred percent for them going seventeen and zero and just taking that record from the uh, from the Patriots. Patriots, thank you. Um, yeah, I did want to just call out a little bit to see what you thought. Um, you know, again, this doesn't have to be like a long thing. Uh, I prefer it if it wasn't, but the fact that Jalen Hurts is just taking steps forward, man. I mean, mm-hmm. credit where it's fucking due. He is off to a great start to the first half of this fucking season. Um, yeah, he is. It's a career high in quarterback rating thus far year over year. 2020, 77.6, 2021, 87.2, 2022, 107.8. He already wow. has 12 passing touchdowns on the season, which is only four away from his total last year, 16 and only two interceptions on the year. Um, His passing yards is already at uh, 2,042, which puts him on pace for 4,000, which would also be um, the most of his career. Last year, he only had 3,100 yards. So he's, I mean, well on his way to eclipse that. And then he's going to eclipse that in the next four games if his um, yards per game holds up. Mm -hmm. Uh, His sacks are up. His sacks are up to 22. But based on his performance passing, I'm not even sure it's really an issue. And how much he's running the ball. Right, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, I, I'm not worried about the sacks. I'm really not. It's for me. It's just he looks very much improved, very much more confident. He's making plays, which is really all you can ask for. It's hey, uh, I would not have many complaints as an Eagles fan uh, if Jalen Hurts was behind center for us. Yeah, and it's an interesting change in in scheme that the Eagles have gone through. His yards, his intended air yards per pass attempt are way down. Uh 2020, sorry, 2020, 9.1, 2021, 9. This year 7.3. Mm-hmm. So his completed air yards per completion, you'd think would also be down, and they are, but not very much. From last year's 6.3, this year's 6.1. And his overall yards per completion, highest of his career. 6.4. All right. All right. So he, it really isn't, it seems as though they're finding what works for him, which that means basically I don't have to force the ball. Like our offense is working well. You know, they're, the run game is improved. The wide receiver core is gelled more with, with what he is capable of doing. And he's probably getting through his reads a little bit faster too, which means he doesn't have to rely on like a go route to just chuck the ball up and hope and is just able to move the ball, move the chains effectively. I mean, it really is coming through. Man. Same thing with the bad throw percent, lowest of his career, 12.3. On target percent, highest of his career, 80.7. I mean, wow. dude's doing great. You know, Howie, uh, Howie Rossman has definitely uh, proven himself to be a pretty damn good GM. Yeah. His uh, plus stats, because pro football reference is good enough to have plus stats. Um, for yards per attempt, 130. So you can read these just the same as like OPS plus. So 30, 130 is 30% better than league average. So 130 net yards per pass attempt, 122. Uh, adjusted yards per pass attempt, 131. Completion percent, 113. Touchdown percent, 107. Interception percent, 124. Uh, quarterback rating plus, 123. And the sack plus, sack percent plus is the only one where he's below 100 at 86. But Again, both Corwin and I have the opinion that 
if everything else is going in the right direction with it's just as a result of how they're running their offense and not really indicative of a, of a shortcoming necessarily. Right. Uh, fucking Eagles, man. It's at nuts. least, at least Philly has that. Okay. Yeah. I, I was also about to, um, just to point out the run game because Corin mentioned it and I was going to, I did not notice. Uh, Jalen Hurts is the second most rushing yards on the team, and it's by a lot. Um, the number one rusher on the team is Miles Sanders, 656 rushing yards. Number two is Jalen Hurts, 326. Wow. Number three is Kenneth Gainwell, 122. Okay. All right. All right. Big difference there. Yeah, so rushing very much so a big part of their offense this year. Yeah, so, so Jalen Hurts, 12 passing touchdowns, six rushing touchdowns. He is tied for his team lead in rushing touchdowns. Wow. Yeah. Hey, good on them. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the dynamic offensive future that liberals want. It's good shit. It, and it's great to see. I mean, that is leaning into a player's play style, you know, like allowing him to have the flexibility to do other things to him to use his legs and 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 get out play to his strengths yeah and it's going to make him more comfortable in situations where he needs to be a pocket passer you know mm-hmm. if you're not forcing the pocket um forcing the player to be a pocket passer on every down and give them the option they're going to be more comfortable when they have the ability to just sit in the pocket and throw because it's going to be have been their choice to do so right yeah no i'm with you so we'll have to get into the NLEs more at some point because it's just, once again, one of the wackiest divisions in the NFL. But I'll save it for another time. Um, got anything else before we uh, get out of here for the week, for the day? Uh, no. All right. Well, it was a wonderful MLB season. Hats off to the Astros. Good job, guys, fellas. I'm glad Jeremy Pena was your MVP. He seems like a super fun dude. He does. Um, all right. Well, if you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Juicing Pod. To follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Hellock. To follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. As I send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthenumbers at gmail.com. And until Thursday, y'all have a good one. Bye.